Blog Talk Radio. At 5 a.m. on April 1st, 2006, a 23-year-old black woman was confronted by a black man as she was moving boxes from her fire-damaged apartment. The man ordered her into the apartment at gunpoint after demanding her vehicle, her purse, and her money. The woman gave the gunman her keys but said she had no money. He then led her into the kitchen where he raped her. He then locked her in a basement pantry. After the victim heard her attacker leave, she broke out of the pantry and called police. The victim said her attacker was 5 feet 9 or 5 feet 10 inches tall, had a dark complexion, and close-cropped hair. She could not recall if he had facial hair. Six days later, a woman called the police and implicated 28-year-old Donya Davis. Davis had previously been convicted of a felonious assault and acquitted of a charge of sexual assault. Police put his photograph in a lineup, and the victim identified him as her attacker, even though Davis was 6'1", had medium complexion, and a short Afro style and thin mustache. DNA tests were performed, but no DNA profile except of the victim was identified. Davis was charged with sexual assault and went on trial March 2007. The victim identified him as the rapist. Davis presented witnesses who testified that he was home sleeping at the time of the crime. A mistrial was declared when the jury was unable to reach a unanimous verdict. Davis went on trial again in October 2007 before a judge who heard the case without a jury. On July 11, 2007, the judge convicted Davis of rape, armed robbery, carjacking, and use of a firearm by a convicted felon. He was sentenced to 22 years in prison. In March 2013, a petition for DNA testing was filed on Davis's behalf by the Michigan Innocence Project. The motion was granted and the DNA tested isolated a partial profile of an unidentified male who was not Davis. No biological material from Davis was found. On June 20, 2014, a defense motion for a new trial was granted without opposition by the Wayne County District Attorney's Office and Davis was released from prison. In November, the prosecution dismissed the charges. This has been a profile of the wrongfully convicted with AJC Radio. Ladies and gentlemen of America, this is AJC Radio, and tonight we continue the series, Voices from Behind the Wall, the Voices of the Innocent. Make no mistake about it, ladies and gentlemen, the criminal justice system in this country is off the rails. Tonight we continue the Voices of the Innocent. This is AJC Radio. We take off right now. There you have it. I'm Lamont Banks, along with Lisa Stewart, Cliff Stewart, Sampson Riddle, and the entire AJC radio team tonight as we continue this discussion, folks, of the voices of the innocent from behind the wall. And we're going to deal with that tonight. And uh, I'll tell you what, Sampson, these shows can go on and on and on if it needs to happen. Uh, The stories are heartbreaking. They're heart-wrenching. But it is necessary. Why is it so important that this message and the abuse behind the wall uh, get told. Well, I mean, like we always say here on the show, you know, we have to be the voice for the voiceless. We have to go and, and speak out for those that can't really speak for themselves, get their message out there, and we have to just continually press forward and show that the injustices that are happening uh, to those personnel, the 
the case upon case that we're seeing each time we, you know, we delve further and further each show of all this wrongdoing that's happening, all these years that are lost and all these families that are affected. And we just have to, you have to get that message out there and keep pushing forward until something changes. No, absolutely right. And this is something that's critically important. Folks, feel free to dial in tonight at 646-200-0628, As we, again, uh, welcome all the phone calls, anybody that has an opinion, a thought, uh, or just wants to chime in on the conversation, we welcome you to call in tonight. Uh, We're going to be joined uh, at the bottom of the hour with Kathleen Moore. She's a continued uh, guest on this show, lady who was spent some time at Rikers Island and saw some things that are just unimaginable. We're going to get into that discussion with her uh, and and definitely uh, have a good conversation. You're going to be hearing some clips tonight, troubling clips, uh, again, of the wrongful convicted. We're going to deal with all of those issues uh, tonight. And uh, going to current news right now, uh, today it was uh, brought out that uh, uh, Miss Ford, uh, the lady in the Kavanaugh situation, uh, now the FBI has been given a week to get information, to do interviews, to do the things that need to be done regarding the Kavanaugh uh, confirmation. And as of today, uh, the lawyers for Miss Ford stated that the FBI still had not given her an interview uh, in regards to the Kavanaugh situation, which seems very problematic when you're talking about a timeline here. I believe they're supposed to vote on Friday uh, on the confirmation. And uh, we're going we're gonna to actually uh, get into that discussion as well. Uh, that just doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, you have an expedited investigation uh, going on by the FBI, and it's Tuesday, the end of Tuesday. You have Wednesday tomorrow, Thursday, and you're supposed to actually be voting uh, on this issue uh, 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 tomorrow. Your thoughts on that, Samson? I just, for me, like, there's, there's not enough time, you know. There's not enough time for the, to gather up the people, to gather the evidence, to put everything together to actually get the truth out there. You know, there's so many allegations, not just from one or two people, but, right. I mean, there's, there's several – women that are coming forward and, and you know we talked about how i think it was a uh, uh, mr flake that came forward sure. and and stood up and and just i don't know it, it seems like a sweep job if you know i'm talking about we're right. trying to you know pick the rug up they're trying to sweep it under there and they're trying to get the uh you know the confirmation through for the supreme court justice and i think that he shouldn't be confirmed they should extend the timeline something like that needs to happen you know so that the entire truth can be told before um the, before anything else moves forward no, absolutely right, and that's something that um, we'll see how that plays out. Uh, I think it's going to uh, ultimately backfire uh, in a situation that um, that's, that's just not good. Uh, you rush it, you're going to have an outcry by the American people. Uh, the, the Me Too movement is going to say, look, we don't care. The investigations are short-lived. Uh, it continues to be an issue. So. Folks, stay with us. Uh, you can go to CNN, CBS, ABC, all you, every network out there. They're talking about the Kavanaugh situation. Uh, we'll keep you more informed. We'll keep you informed here as well as stories develop uh, in that uh, situation. Uh, on the other side of the break, folks, we're coming back. The voices from behind the wall continues. Voices of the innocent. We'll be right back. Do you have a big brother? Well. I have a big brother, and I'm pretty sure that 
you and I experienced some of the same things with the big brother. Big brothers will always be big brothers, right? I'm sure you'll agree. Well, my brother gets up in the morning. He takes a shower, heads to work. And at some point during the day, he's going to exercise and get that workout, as we all do. And, of course, depending on what's going on, he's going to sit down for two or three meals during the course of his day. And also, depending on what else is going on, he'll probably get caught up on current events and maybe take a few moments to turn a page in a book. How about your big brother? Some of the same stuff, right? Oh, did I mention that my big brother does all of that stuff? But he actually has to have permission a lot of times before he can do it. You see, my big brother was wrongfully convicted of a crime that he did not commit. That's right. That may sound shocking, huh? He's in prison. Wrongful convictions impact families in ways you cannot begin to imagine. But I've decided that I'm going to do something about it. And I extend an invitation to you to come on board and join me in this fight. You see, I'm helping to be a voice for my big brother and others who have been wrongfully convicted. We'd like you to take a few moments today and call a just cause where we fight for justice. You can call us toll free at 1-855-529-4252. That's 1-855-529-4252. Join with us as we fight for justice and for all big brothers across the land. I'm a mother. I'm a father. I'm a sister. A registered nurse. I serve my country in the United States military. I'm your neighbor. I sit next to you at church. And my child was arrested. Held in custody. Questioned without my knowledge. Exposed to violence. Witnessed to rape. Placed in solitary confinement. Unable to call or see me. Shackled to a wall. Beaten. Sentenced as an adult at age 17. Sentenced as an adult at age 16. Sentenced as an adult at age 15. We felt lost. Isolated. Ostracized. Misjudged. Terrified. And in the absence of all hope, my child took his own life. And then I found the Alliance for Youth Justice. They gave me the support and resources to get through one of the most difficult times in my life. Now I know I'm not alone. And neither are you. Now we have a voice. Now we We have have power. power. In numbers. In numbers. In numbers. We we can make a difference. There are approximately 2 million children in the juvenile and criminal justice system in this country. These are the faces of those families. If you are the family member of a child who has been in the justice system, or if you are someone who supports this movement and is ready to make a difference, visit the Campaign for Youth Justice at www.campaignforyouthjustice.org. Odds of becoming an astronaut, 1 in 13,200,000. Odds of being struck by lightning, 1 in 576,000. Odds of dating a supermodel, 1 in 88,000. Odds of bowling a perfect game, 1 in 11,500. Odds of being trapped in an elevator, 1 in 24,000. 
528. Odds of catching a ball at a major league game, 1 in 563. Odds of an injury from shaving, 1 in 6,585. Odds of tripping while texting, 1 in 10. Odds of getting cancer in your lifetime, 1 in 2 men, 1 in 3 women. It's up to us to change the odds for our generation. For the ones we love. For our future. If you don't like the odds, stand up. Stand up to cancer. Here are 50 white guys. Here are 50 black guys. Here's how many white guys can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. The chances amount to 1 out of 17. Now here's how many black guys can expect the same thing. The chances are 1 out of 3. Why? Lots of reasons. It's complicated, but one thing is clear. There's racial bias at every level of the criminal justice system. When blacks and whites commit the same kind of crimes, blacks are more likely to be arrested. Once arrested, they're more likely to be convicted. Once convicted, they're more likely to serve in longer sentences. Look at the numbers in America's so-called war on drugs. About 14% of American drug users are black, as are about a quarter of drug sellers. Yet blacks are 34% of the people arrested for drug crimes. And those convicted of drug crimes, 46% are black. By the time we factor in sentencing, there are actually more black drug offenders than white ones in state prisons and in federal prisons. In the end, the incarceration rate for drug crimes is 10 times higher for blacks than it is for whites. These are the facts. Racial disparity in America's war on drugs is one big reason that one out of three black men can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. Back, ladies and gentlemen, this is AJC Radio, and we are coming back from you. Excuse me, coming back to you live from Colorado Springs, AJC Radio. Again, again, continuing the voices from behind the wall and the voices of the innocent. And uh, thanks for again joining us tonight. We're going to be joined at the bottom of the hour by Kathy Morris. She's going to be coming in on board to ha- uh, you know have a conversation with us. Uh, starting Rikers, an American Jail documentary, uh, and has I'll tell you what she's br- brought a lot to the conversation. Uh, as far as what's going on uh, behind the walls uh, of our jails and prisons across this country. But again, we continue our discussion of the voices of the innocent. And uh, as we said before, uh, nothing worse than to be wrongfully convicted uh, and, to be, and to suffer abuse at the hand of those folks that are supposed to be looking out for you, supposed to be making sure you're safe. But we have found through the course of this series, uh, the abuse has been absolutely uh, horrific. Uh, you know, people getting assaulted and beaten in, in these jails and had the opportunity to have Antoine on last week uh, from the Exoneree Band uh, and that, those group of men. Uh, I'll tell you what, uh, my hat, you take your hat off to those guys that are, have suffered at years uh, of, of, of wrongful incarcerations, that entire group of men, uh, I mean, a number over 100 years. Uh, of uh, time that those men have done collectively. And uh, they're out here trying to make a difference and do some things 
that uh, that impacts the lives of, of the of our, you know of people across this country, and to try to do something positive in the, out of in the midst of a very horrific situation. Samson, these stories are critically important. We, the week before, we did Joyce Ann Brown, uh, the tragedy there in Texas. Uh, this lady being wrongfully convicted. And I'm just kind of giving you a recap since we've started the voices of the innocent. Um, <clears throat> horrible situation. And she, she, her interview was so passionate that she was not going to admit to anything that she did not do. And unfortunately uh, passed away uh, some years later after uh, her release from prison and it came on this show uh, a couple of years prior to that, uh, to that passing. And we, uh, we were very saddened by that, and uh, she she will be missed for sure. And her organization, I'm sure, uh, is feeling that loss. But uh, Samson, g- g- give me your viewpoint, if you will, before we get all in here. Uh, that is this something that, and, and and I'll be honest with you, I'm not completely optimistic here. If we don't see some changes uh, in the way things are done in this country, in these communities, uh, across this country. And if people don't get off their couches and start speaking out against this type of issue, uh, I don't see a change coming. Well, Lamont, I mean, when we look at the stories and we look, I mean, we just look at the, the numbers and the statistics that we've gone over in the past, you know, few weeks here, how if only 1% of the population that's incarcerated right now were wrongfully convicted, I mean, you're talking about 20,000 people. And, you know, uh, again, with Miss Brown, I mean, yes, she, she turned her situation around into, I mean, she was a, a, a loud and staunch advocate for, you know, those that are wrongfully convicted. And, you know, she she maintained her innocence throughout the entire process. She got out and she immediately became uh, a voice for those that are in similar situations to her, just like the, uh, you know, uh, Antoine Day and the Exoneree Band. These guys, they, again, like you said, they served over a century wrongfully convicted collectively between them all but the fact of the matter is is they took that we know what they went through they turned it into a platform and they're reaching back out to the community they're going out and they're educating not only you know uh the adults in the in the areas around them but also the the youth you know Antoine talks about how you know he's involved with the youth around there and educating them on you know you know proper processes and how to handle interactions with law enforcement because the fact of the matter is you know with with the uh the justice quote unquote system that we have today, you know, you have to, you know, unfortunately for minorities and well, everybody in this country, they, there has to be a way that, you know, they, they, they can't just approach uh, law enforcement anymore. And for good reason, they don't trust them. There've been way too many documented cases around the United States where people are getting gunned down. They're getting abused. They're getting beaten. They're getting smothered by five or six you know, police officers over what? No, absolutely right. And then these are things that, again, people should be outraged about. We'll play it. And, you know, the people in authority that have the power to pardon, uh, whether you're a governor uh, in the state level, uh, uh, the Department of Justice, uh, any of those places that have the ability to bring justice, uh, they simply sit on that. Let's hear a quick clip uh, of a story involving just that. Keith Cooper of Indiana is a man who was wrongfully convicted of an armed robbery back in the 90s. And decades later, he is still fighting for something approaching justice in his life. He was originally sentenced in 1997 for a robbery committed in Elkhart, Indiana. Still has a felony on his record despite being a free man. He served 10 years in prison before his conviction was overturned. 
again for a crime that he did not commit. Now, uh, over time, as he was in jail, more and more evidence came out to, uh, to show that he was not actually the man who did it. Uh, back in 2005, an Indiana Court of Appeals overturned the conviction of Cooper's co-defendant. Cooper was given a choice, a new trial before the same judge that convicted him, or go free, but with a felony on his record, a record that continues to contain that felony. Uh, now, some of uh, what's happened in the meantime, um, in 2014, Indiana's parole board and the prosecutor on the case unanimously recommended that Mike Pence, governor of Indiana, who you might have heard of, he's been hanging out a lot with Donald Trump lately, uh, unanimously recommended that Pence pardon him. Pence refused. Uh, now, the deputy prosecutor originally involved in the actual uh, case with, uh, with Keith said, uh, Dear Governor Pence, in a letter, I am the former deputy prosecuting attorney that prosecuted Keith Cooper in the Elkhart County Circuit Court. I am writing to you in support of Mr. Cooper's petition for a pardon. So you have the parole board. You have one of the prosecutors involved in the case originally. Uh, he went on to say, We cannot undo the wrongful imprisonment of Mr. Cooper, obviously, but we can undo his wrongful conviction with a pardon. And so now he spent 10 years in prison. He's been fighting for years to get the felony taking off his record a felony that everybody understands at this point he did not commit. Uh, Governor Pence told Cooper he should request a new trial and exhaust all of his legal options before requesting a pardon. Now understand that, again, Keith Cooper didn't do this. Also understand Mike Pence has pardoned three people with felony convictions who admitted guilt during his time as governor. So maybe Keith would have had a better chance if he had actually done the crime. Yeah, and there's no, just to be clear, no question he didn't do the crime. They got new DNA, DNA evidence they, who well, turned out they, they have the guy. It's a different yeah. guy who did it. What strikes me most about the story, Mike Pence is a bad guy. Mike Pence might be a worse guy than Donald Trump. Mike Pence wanted in 2001 to redirect money for HIV, AIDS research, and treatment of people uh, to gay conversion therapy. Mike Pence is a despicable person. So Mike Pence's behavior here doesn't surprise me. I'm, I don't know. It seems like a freebie. It seems like a layup that you're not taking. But what strikes me most about this is that moment, and I guess when was it, John? 2007, when he's given the option. Like, they've already freed his co-defendants. So they're saying, admit guilt, and you can go free, or you can go for a new trial. If they allow him to go free, they know. They know whoever was prosecuting it then. But they don't want that on their record. They don't want the precedent of letting somebody go free. So like, we'll let you out of prison. You can walk out of here today, but you're going to have to admit guilt, which will let us feel better, even though we know you didn't do it. That, to me, that's that, you know, when we talk about wanting to arrest people on Wall Street and so forth, that seems criminal to me, that kind of behavior, to not say, wow, Keith Cooper, you're free today. No matter what, you walk out of here. If you want a new trial, fine, but you're free. And making him... Uh, Making him say he was guilty to a crime he didn't commit to save face is disgusting. Yeah. Well, Ben, I don't think you're being fair to Mike Pence. Uh, I think that what might be worse than the gay conversion therapy is when he wanted to force women who had an abortion or a miscarriage to uh, do a funeral for their yeah. fetus. Didn't just want to. He signed that law. Yeah. And so, yes, it, it, he... He's a legendarily bad guy if people knew enough about him. But look at this. In the middle of a presidential run, mm. when you know the guy is innocent, it's amazing. Well, how hard is it? We, we, and Mike Pence knows. It's not like Mike Pence doesn't know. He knows. Everybody knows. The parole board never says, hey, pardon the guy. They might parole people, et cetera, but it's a very rare thing for them to say, yo, governor, over here, this guy's super innocent. For Christ's sake, in the middle of a red state, make sure you pardon him. Yeah. And Pence is like, nope, 
nope, not going to do it. Not going to do it. I'm running for president. And I need to see, or vice president, maybe eventually president after Trump gets impeached, if that were to happen. <laughs> anyway, no, I'm not going to do it because I need to seem more barbaric. Yeah. You know, Cenk, uh, Mike Pence is even more disgusting than that. Uh, <laughs> uh, while he was doing all that stuff, I saw a picture of him one time putting ketchup on a steak while wearing Crocs. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, you know, they're, they're yeah, you know, be allowed to run. in Indiana, though, they're, they're like that. You know, he has a nickname in Indiana. Do you know it? It's Mike. Yeah. <laughs> that was from the convention that's when right. they said that. But that's not a nickname. That's, that's a they, name. That's what they call him back home. They call yeah, him back, home. A, back home. For they call sure. Mike. For oh, sure. Uh, so also, I, I didn't make clear, like, this isn't... Well, there you have it. Um, got a little off topic there as we got further in that clip, but the the consensus was is that this man was innocent in the state of Indiana. Uh, DNA testing proved uh, this man's innocent. And then at the time, Mike Pence, who was the governor there, did not pardon. And the prosecution uh, in that state recommended uh, that, that his case be overturned. And the governor, who had the power to do it, simply didn't do it. Uh, these are the things that we talk about. People in positions of power, uh, they contribute uh, to the problem we have in this country of the wrongfully convicted. And in this, in this series, the voices from behind the wall uh, did 10 years. It's not like he just went in. He did 10 years. And they said, DNA is showing this guy's innocence. Will you pardon him, please? At the state level, the governor has the power to pardon he refused to do so. Uh, and I think that's a tragedy uh, when you're talking about everybody points fingers at who's to blame, who's this, who's that. To blame is the system and the people in authority who have the power to change it since, sits idly by and does nothing while the little people come out and protest and fight and are tired and are marching because there is no justice being seen in these situations when it is clear innocence uh, that is going on. And I, I think that is absolutely horrific. And every, from week to week on this show, we, we find more and more uh, issues that people simply do not care because it has not touched their front door. And that doesn't matter whether you're a governor, whether you're a judge, whether you're a, an appellate court, the state Supreme Court, or the United States Supreme Court. When it comes to the innocent, and I don't think people really understand the impact of that. It's tough on people who have made mistakes, may have been guilty, but the innocent to sit behind bars for 10 years? And that takes us to our next, uh, uh, our next story. An innocent man died in prison and how his legacy helps the wrongfully convicted uh, in Texas. This story was written back in May of this year. And it says, Corey Sessions will take one flower, a bird of paradise, with him Saturday when he heads to the cemetery. There at Mount Olivet, he will pay tribute at the graveside of his parents and place the flower one of his mother's favorites on the grave of his older brother, Tim Cole. Saturday marks a decade since officials excuse me, formally learned that Sessions and his family have always known. DNA evidence proved that Cole, who died in prison, 
from an asthma attack in 1999 had been unjustly convicted of rape more than a decade earlier. We knew he was innocent, Sessions said. We had to wait for the world to know it. In past years, Sessions said his mother, Ruby Cole Sessions, who died in 2013, would cook a special meal every May 19th, and then the family would head to the cemetery. This year, he and family members will go before his 18-year-old daughter heads out to her senior prom. There, not far from Cole's tombstone, they'll see the historical maker that tells the story of how the Fort Worth man went to prison for a crime he didn't commit, and years later, after the true rapist confessed to the crime, ended up receiving the state's first and only posthumous pardon. Sessions' mother called May 19th the day we made history. Since then, largely because of the efforts of Cole's family, Texas has been recognized as a leader in helping those who were wrongfully convicted. On Saturday, when he places the bird of paradise on Cole's grave, Sessions will remember his mother's comment when his brother was buried. She said, my first bird has gone on to paradise. Cole's family never gave up in their quest to prove that former Texas Tech student and Army veteran was wrongfully accused and wrongfully convicted. A fellow Tech student, Michelle Mallon, identified him as her rapist from a photograph in the 1985, and the case went to trial in Lubbock. During the trial, Cole's attorney said they believed Jerry Wayne Johnson, the man who confessed to the crime, <clears throat> excuse me, more than a decade later, was the actual rapist. Cole repeatedly proclaimed his innocence, even turning down a plea bargain that would have put him on probation, saying he would wait to see how the justice system will work out. In less than a week, he was convicted and sentenced to 25 years in prison. A few days after that, Sessions said he remembers his mother pacing up and down the hallway in their home about 2 a.m. while the rest of the family slept. Almost in a trance, she was screaming, swinging her arms and calling out, God, you know he didn't do this. Why did they convict? I saw a pain in my mother that I'd never seen in my life. Sessions recalled, I knew this can't be it. That often gave him the strength to keep fighting to prove his brother's innocence. Even after being in prison for several years, Cole rejected an offer of parole because it would have required him to admit to guilt. His greatest wish was to be exonerated and completely vindicated. Session could hardly believe the phone call he received from his brother in December of 99. As his mother screamed and cried in the background, Session learned that Cole, at 39, had died in prison on December 2nd from complications of his asthma. He served 13 years of his sentence. Heartbroken, the family buried Cole but remained committed to proving his innocence and clearing his name. Then one day, Ruby Cole Session received a letter from Johnson, which was similar to other letters the inmate had been writing to Lubbock leaders for years. It was intended for Cole since Johnson didn't know he had died. In it, Johnson confessed to the rape that landed Cole behind bars. It was the answer to prayer Ruby Cole Session offered up every night asking for the person who committed the crime to confess doing her lifetime. What a tragic, tragic story. 39 years of age. Dead from complications from asthma and given the trend of prisons, nobody did a thing. Oh, no. I mean, we, we've heard about it time and again, about the, just the abuse that, that people behind the walls suffer at the hands of correction officers, other inmates, and everything else like that. So complications from his asthma is probably the official report, but God only knows, God only truly knows what really happened to that man. But the fact of the matter is that he was 
wrongfully convicted and for so long, I mean, we're talking a decade out of his life, just completely taken away. And I, I, mean, I think it's admirable what the family did afterwards to try and, you know, um, not only to continually prove his innocence, but to use it as a platform for others. But still, like, we wonder why people don't trust the justice system in the United States. And, you know, how dare they now, you know, as we've said time and again, how dare they call it, you know, the greatest system in the world. Yep. You know, when we have we've we've gone over case and case and case of people serving time, so much time behind bars when, you know, and wrongfully so. I'm sitting here reading an article right now where a gentleman spent 30 years behind bars for a crime he didn't commit that the officers, when they arrested him, basically beat a confession out of him. They withheld evidence. And, you know, blood evidence that would have exonerated him right then, back in 1982, and this man doesn't get out until 2012, and then dies four years later. Yeah, it's 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 a uh, it's a tragic situation, and uh, we're going to continue this conversation with our very very special honored guest, Kathy Morse joins us now, uh, a lady that has seen her share of abuse and trauma and things unimaginable. Uh, she joins this conversation tonight as we talk about voices from behind the wall. The Voices of the Innocent. And Kathy, how are you this evening? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? We're doing good. And we wanted to invite you for this program tonight as we've been on this series, Voices from Behind the Wall, uh, I believe for several weeks now, I think up to 16 to 17 shows uh, we have done as far as Voices from Behind the Wall. And uh, uh, we're happy to have you to join us tonight uh, in regards to this conversation. Uh, when you hear these stories, Kathy, and, and we've heard some really heart-wrenching things from you, uh, and we're trying to get a, give a sense into our listeners, um, the sense of what is going on behind the wall, but then what's going on with the innocent people that, that we come across behind the wall that are scared, that are terrified. And I'm sure you came across some folks there uh, were in Rikers uh, that simply hadn't done anything. But we, we, we always go to the, the Browder story, uh, Khalif Browder and yeah. what he said. Yep. But I'm sure he, was one, he had to be one of many uh, behind He's the He's one of many, yeah. Go and ahead. one thing I noticed when you, you were talking, and you were talking about, you know, people who are, you know, have health problems and they're being ignored. Something that I guess people don't realize is not only the trauma that one experiences from being incarcerated, but the stress. Yes. Especially well, for those, especially for those who are innocent and wrongfully convicted. You know, there's mm-hmm. that stress and that, you know, it's that, you know, look, I know I didn't do anything and I have to keep fighting. And that in and of itself takes a lot out of you. And imagine. there's, you know, the numerous setbacks that they have in fighting their cases. Um, And it really, it takes a toll on you. It absolutely does. And it, it, it wears you down. And, you know, the health services that are provided in, in prisons and jails is horrible to begin with. Um, So, you know, combine all this stuff and, it, re- it, it really takes a toll on you, um, and you just, you got to keep fighting. 
you know, you just can't keep up. You know, you can't, you can't let up because if you do, then you uh, let them win. No, absolutely right. And then, you know, I think what we've learned over the last uh, few weeks here is that the heart-wrenching suffering uh, is what makes us outraged. Uh, not only to the innocent, and that's what we're talking about tonight, but to those who may have made some bad choices, made mistakes. They didn't earn mm-hmm. the abuse that they're getting. They didn't earn that. I think we wanted to. Right. Go ahead. Nobody, nobody deserves that. No, nobody absolutely. deserves to be treated like that. You know, we're all human beings. At the end of the day, we all, we all breathe the same air. We all cry the same tears, and we all bleed the same color. And we're all human beings, and, and people seem to forget that because you've got people who are incarcerated, and they're automatically labeled. Absolutely. And Absolutely. Because, they're, because of that label, you know, people are like, oh, you know what? They don't need to be taken care of. They don't have health issues. Why are they, you know, why are they getting that treatment when people out in the community can't afford it? Yeah. And how and, do, how- that's unbelievable. It's not right. It's it's not right um, because as I said, we're all human beings. Absolutely right. And and at the end of the day, if I'm hurting medically, physically, and I need medical care, yes. I have a right to get that. And uh, to feel like, and I believe it's the culture of this society that has come to believe by by the by whatever brought them to that conclusion that people behind bars don't matter and that is not true and then you take on top of that as we address tonight the voices of the innocent they definitely Mm -hmm. the guilty matter but you have someone doing time that's not their time to do and that is the bottom line is if i've if i pull if i'm driving down the street and there's a pedestrian there on the ground bleeding from someone who may have ran over him Guess what? When I get out my car to attend to that guy or that woman, mm-hmm. I'm not going to ask if they got a record. Hey, have you ever been locked up? <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. I'm going to do. I'm going to call 911 because someone is down and needs help. That's the bottom line. So, the anything other than that is utter nonsense. And I want to play a clip for you right now, Kathy, that talks about Mary Jones, a wrongfully convicted grandmother grandmother wrongfully Mm -hmm. convicted in what she went through. I'm going to get your thoughts on the other side of this clip. Let's play it. Okay. Our final story tonight is about Mary Jones. She's in her 70s, but she just began a new life. She was released from prison this week after serving more than three decades behind bars for a crime she didn't commit. Ben Tracy has her story. I just knew in my spirit that it wasn't right. And I knew that God was going to open the doors, you know, in his time. 32 years ago, Mary Jones fell in love with a man named Mose Willis. Not knowing who he really was. He wasn't a good guy. No. Willis killed someone during a drug deal in an alley. Mary Jones drove him there. He forced you? Yes. At At gunpoint, yes. And you felt like, had you not driven that car, he would have killed you? Yes. In 1981, she was convicted of first-degree murder and given a life sentence. Hi! Hi. 
But Mary Jones's case was reopened with help from Laura Donaldson and other law students at the University of Southern California. They argued Jones had been abused by her boyfriend and forced into the crime. On Monday, a judge ordered her released, and Jones's family released their joy. Her daughter, Denitra, spoke outside the courthouse. I'm excited. We got a lot of Mother Days to catch up on that are unconfined. Okay, thank you. Today, she took her mom to the DMV to get an ID card. Mary Jones is now 74. In 32 years, what do you feel you missed? Well, I miss my grandbabies. I didn't get to hold them on my lap. I didn't get to see them crawl. So I missed all of that. I did. Behind bars, Jones started a Bible study and was known as Mother Mary. Former inmate Patricia Elder was there to welcome her when she was freed. You become like family when you're there for all that many years with, a per with people, you know. What did you learn about yourself in 32 years in there? I learned patience. I would imagine you have to in that situation. Yes, you do. You have to hurry up and wait. She waited 11,875 days to be free. Ben Tracy, CBS News, Los Angeles. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, the story is heart-wrenching that a grandmother by the name of Mary Jones endured that type of suffering, that type of loss of freedom and the opportunity to be around her family. And just to learn at that age, she didn't do a thing wrong. Kathy, your thoughts on that? All of the time that she missed with her family can never be replaced. All those birthdays, all those holidays that she missed can never, she can never get that back. And, and that's I the worst, that's the worst part. Um, yeah. The other thing is the people who might have forgotten about her, and that does happen. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's that's one of the biggest fears for anybody who's incarcerated or detained, is that the world on the outside continues to go on, while life for everybody on the inside stops. And you know, for people, it's like. They forgot about me. You know, they wrote me off. They don't write to me. They don't visit me. They don't care about me. And it's rough. It's really rough. And that's sometimes why you form those bonds with people that you are incarcerated with. They become your family. Yes. Absolutely. You know, you begin to you celebrate the holidays with them. You celebrate the birthdays with them. You're the ones who were there to mourn the death of someone with them. True. Wow. And you just, you know, and I, cause I, you know, personally I have experienced, I have experienced 
um, the loss of my sister while I was incarcerated. And I wasn't able to attend the funeral because it was out of state. And it was six weeks shy of my release. Um, you know, I miss things with my own daughter, like when she had her, the kindergarten mother's tea. I was incarcerated and couldn't go. I'll never get that back. You know, the memories that are established are lost. I don't, I really don't think America gets it. I don't, I don't think they get it. Well, because they take that, they take all of that for granted. They, you know, and then, you know, then they get very nasty and they're like, well, if you don't want to do the time, then don't do the crime. And to me, that is so offensive because there are people who are incarcerated who are actually innocent. There's people who are incarcerated who actually took a plea deal, um, say, because they were on Rikers and they wanted to get out of that hell hole. And the only way they, if they didn't want to stay there to fight it at trial. So they just took a plea just to get it over with to get out of Rikers and it does happen. It doesn't only happen at Rikers. It'll happen in other places because they're so worn out and they're so tired of fighting. Yeah. You know, and and then you'll have other people who will be there for six or seven years because they're fighting their case. And I'll tell you this, Kathy, I experienced some things, some emotions recently um, as uh, people that I know that have gotten out of prison, uh, the mental anguish of trying to recover from being locked in a cage for whatever amount of time that they're locked up. You can't. It's that, it's that trauma. Whether you're in there for two hours or you're in there for 10 years. The trauma well, is something that will stay with you for the rest of your life. No, and I agree with you on that. I think what's tragic, uh, I saw it firsthand myself uh, recently. And as I begin to hear the person talk after being wrongfully convicted, mm-hmm. the disconnect from reality and trying mm-hmm. to come back to a world that you left years ago and to try to somehow mentally put the things back together. Uh, I begin to understand what post-traumatic, I, I think that's what it's called, post-traumatic stress syndrome. Is that right? Uh, PTSD, yes. PTSD. Mm-hmm. It's just not coming back from war. It's coming back from trauma. No, because that, I experience it. Yeah, I experience it myself. And I, mm-hmm. I, how many countless prisoners, and tonight we're going to focus on the innocent, that walk out of a prison cell. What mm-hmm. did Khalif Browder mentally endure after being beaten? Again, innocent, was never charged with a crime, was beaten and threatened to be thrown back in Rikers for a backpack that they so-called alleged that he had taken, that drove this man to tie a air-conditioned cord around his neck and hang himself on the side of his mother's house because he said he couldn't go back. 
to Rikers. Who will be held accountable for that? This is what we're talking uh, about. Yeah. The mm-hmm. voices of the innocent cry not only from prisons and jails, they cry from the grave. They cry from yep. death row as death is administered on these people. And we as a nation sit back and say, well, that's just the way it is. Now, I have to tell you that my heart goes out to Khalif's family, and I'm also grateful to them for bringing his story to the public because Khalif is not the only one. There are many more who have committed suicide as a result of their detention or their incarceration that we don't hear about. And I think that the Browder family is doing everyone a great public service by publicizing this, by going out and telling his story. Absolutely. They're telling the story. They're telling the stories of others. Um, Personally, I told my um, therapist that if I had to go back to Rikers, I would kill myself. Well, I, I I came out and I told I told her that I said if I have to go back there I would kill myself, um, and there would be times when I would go to court and I had a private attorney and he would come back to see me and I would be begging him to not send me back there to do something to get me out and unfortunately I didn't have a bail I was on remand, right? Because I because I missed a court date and. Um, I would beg him, please don't send me back there. And I know I'm not the only one. No, you're not. And uh, Kathy, we're going to take a quick break. I want to come back. We're going to get into that. We're going to play the Khalif uh, Browder story that was aired, I believe, on ABC. And we're going to play that for our listeners. We're going to talk about it. Ladies and gentlemen of America, this is AJC Radio Voices from Behind the Wall. Joining us tonight Kathy Morse. We're going to be joined shortly also to join the conversation by Mark Clements. And uh, I'll tell you what, this is serious stuff. And uh, it's time that we take a listen. It's time we take a look at a system where body bags continue to fill because justice is denied. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. don't understand the importance of exercising and eating right. Most people think it's about getting super buff or eating grass to keep that perfect bod, but to those who believe that are wrong. Exercising regularly and getting the right balance of nutritious food leads to a common diagnosis known as healthy. Now healthy may sound mainstream and boring, but it's real. It improves your immune system to prevent sickness, boosts self-confidence and controls body weight, gives you energy and improves your overall happiness. So next time you think that's not bad, think again and be the best you you can be. I wanted to be in the military since I was a a kid. I served in the United States Air Force. I served a total of 16 years. I was deployed uh, 13 times. On my second deployment, four bombs hit my vehicle. And at 19 years old, that's the first time I ever saw somebody die. Coming back, I was raging. I started having pretty horrible nightmares. I would wake up in the middle of the night, sweats. I started drinking a lot. I felt worthless. I guess I never recognized it in myself. Eventually, one day, I just walked into the VA hospital, 
and said I'd like to see somebody. Don't suffer alone. You gotta find that link with somebody that'll make you let it go. It all starts with going to the VA. There's a whole community of veterans that just want to help you out. It's for the guys who couldn't come back, so you owe it to them to live well, because they're not here with their families. There's a lot of mud when it rains here, and it makes it really hard to find food. There are car bombs every day. My mom worries about me when I go out. Every time I hear the alarm bell go off from school, I think it's an air raid. Sometimes I have nightmares about it. A lot of houses in our neighborhood have been destroyed. I like to close my ears and sing songs whenever the bombs come close. My dad says we have to leave, which makes me scared. I'm worried our new neighbors won't like us. What if they don't understand our religion? Because we don't speak the language, it might be hard for them to make friends. But I know it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be worth it. I just want my family to be safe. But these are not my words. These are not my words. These are not my words. Ladies and gentlemen, can I ask you a question? Did you know that there are over 2.4 million people behind bars in the United States? I'll ask you one more question. Were you aware that that is the highest number of people behind bars in the entire world? The United States makes up of only 5% of the world's population, but we have over 25% of the world's prison population. America prides itself on being the most advanced and progressive nation on earth. However, sadly, we are also the world's most archaic. I'm going to give you a personal invitation to get involved with the fight against mass incarceration. Take a few moments to call one 855-529-4252. That is a just cause. And we fight for justice. Again, call a just cause today. Don't delay. Call one 529 4252 It is time, and I say high time, that we take America's incarceration seriously. Won't you join us? Call today. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio, where we are always in search for justice and to bring that message around the world. Tonight is no exception, and we welcome you back to this program, Voices from Behind the Wall, the Voices of the Innocent. And I'll tell you what, what we've heard thus far on this show, and a very special thanks to Kathy Moores telling us some of the stories from Rikers Island and her personal experience with abuse behind that wall and then the innocent that are there, and without question are still there, suffering tremendously. We talked briefly about Khalif Browder, the young man that 
as we stated earlier, was so terrified of a system that failed him. After being released from Rikers after three years without ever being charged with a crime, a teenager, and ultimately in fear of going back to Rikers because someone accused him of taking a backpack, hung himself outside of his mother's homes with the extension cord of an air conditioning unit on the side of the house. And I'll never forget some of the things that when we first reported that story, the emotions, the grief, uh, not only coming from people all across the country, from the state of New York, as well as uh, his mother. Right now, we're going to play a clip uh, really quick and talks about the Khalif Browder tragedy that took place. We're going to talk about it. We turn now to another tragic story about a young man who learned the hard way about the troubles plaguing America's criminal justice system. Khalif Browner was arrested at 16, never convicted of a crime, never had a trial, but spent more than three years in one of the most violent jails in the country. Tonight, here is Khalif in his own words. You're supposed, you're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty, but the way the system is, you're guilty until proven innocent. Little did we know, Khalif Browder was already dying inside the day we met him. At the easy age of 22, he'd already learned more about America's criminal justice system and endured more than any soul should ever have to. That's Khalif there on the floor inside Rikers Island, New York City's most notorious jail, beaten by a gang of fellow inmates all caught on camera. At the age of 16, he was arrested and sent here for allegedly stealing a backpack. It was like, how long earth? We were beaten, stomped by the, by the correction officers, and they were just beating on me. They were just beating on me. Beatings captured on surveillance video obtained by the New Yorker magazine, which first brought Khalif's story to light. In this video, we see him being escorted to the prison shower. He appears to speak to the guard, who in seconds is seen slamming him into a wall and then to the ground. And I cry myself to sleep because it's like, I want to go home, and it's like, they're not letting me go home. To go home, Khalif's mother, Benita Brown, needed to post bail of $3,000, money she says she just didn't have. What was your reaction when you heard that your 16-year-old boy was being sent to Rikers Island? My heart dropped. You know, I had heard so many horror stories about Rikers, and all I could picture was him getting hurt in there. Court records show Khalif had attempted suicide at least six times, spent 1,110 days behind bars, more than 800 of those in solitary confinement. His court date postponed more than 30 times. He endured all this having never been given a trial, never convicted of a crime. Finally, in June of 2013, all charges against Khalif were dismissed. But his experience exposed the troubled criminal justice system and the brutality of life behind bars. I think at some point, almost a reckless disregard by the prosecutors in this case. They didn't care, Byron. They saw his file. They saw that he was in jail, and he'd probably take a plea, and they were hoping he'd take a plea. They just told me that if I plead guilty, I would release from jail that same day. But I didn't do it. You're not going to make me say I did something just so I could go home. When we first met him November of last year, he was doing better, he said. Earned his GED, started classes at Bronx Community College, pulling a 3.56 GPA. But the psychological trauma from jail had taken its toll. 
And when he first came home, he would just walk the four corners of the driveway. You hear animals do that have been confined to a space. Yes, he did it. And I had to watch my baby go through all of that. In the last year, Khalif grew depressed, deeply paranoid. You know, deep down, I'm a mess. I feel like I'm a grown old man. And then two Saturdays ago, two years after his release from jail, Khalif Browder hanged himself with an air conditioner cord in his home in the Bronx. He was 22. I didn't know what to do. I, can you imagine finding your son and he's hanging with his head back? Khalif's death made national news and messages of outrage mixed with sympathy flooded social media. John Legend wrote in an op-ed that New York failed Khalif. Lena Dunham Instagrammed his photo and called for reform. Our interview with Khalif went viral on Facebook. What we now know is that Khalif was due in court to face new charges of disorderly conduct the week he took his own life. His family said he was scared to go back into jail. By now, the beatings he endured in Rikers have been seen millions of times online. What did Rikers do to your son? It destroyed him. It destroyed him mentally. Has anyone apologized to you from Rikers? No. From the prosecutor's office? No. What do you hope happens now? I want them to be responsible, to admit that it was their fault that my son is dead. He spent three years in, in hell. It sounds like you're in that hell now. I will be in hell until the day I die because I found my son hanging. If your child is murdered, you, you have a, an immediate anger towards that person and you want that person found you know, and, and paid for what they did to your child. It's not one person, it's a whole system that destroyed my son. And I want them all to pay. I deeply wish we hadn't lost him, but he did not die in vain. New York did away with solitary confinement for 16 and 17 year olds. Plans were announced to fix crowded dockets in courts to ensure the right to a speedy trial. There are also calls for change to the cash bail system. Currently, only 12% of defendants in New York City make bail. We're in a quest for justice right now, Byron. Paul Prestia, who helped Khalif file his civil suit against the city, says it's not enough. The reforms are all nice and well, but admit you did something wrong here, because that was always Khalif's message. How many young men have to go through this? 99% of the critics will talk all that junk. I promise you, they wouldn't have the courage to do the job that the correction officers do. Bernie Carrick knows the system from both sides. The former chief of the New York City Police Department, he also ran Rikers Island for years. And as a convicted felon, he spent time in solitary confinement. As someone that spent 60 days inside solitary confinement, it creates paranoia. It makes you insane. But he cautions the city against bowing to public pressure and implementing changes, he says, that could put Rikers correction officers and inmates in danger. If you take solitary confinement away from the correction officials, you're going to see a major, major increase in violence. These are kids that come from gangs. These are kids that ran the streets. I think is very dangerous. So what would you do? What, what were I your think, suggestions to improve think, Rikers Island? I think you keep that. You charge the staff that violate the law, and they're locked up. It's not hard to imagine the life he might have led if he'd made it. I have the medal hanging on my bed. 
You see it in the remnants of the life and the people he left behind, like Elizabeth Pyams, program director at Bronx Community College, who worked closely with Khalif. She says she's working on getting Khalif his associate degree posthumously. It's real. Thank you so much. What do you want the world to remember of your son? To remember him for the stand-up person that he was. He was a good person. The kind of person who turned down a plea bargain on principle, whose story may help save others like him. If I would have just been guilty, then my story would have never been heard. Nobody would have took the time to listen to me. I'd have been just another criminal. Well, there you have it. Khalif Browder, dead at the age of 22 from a system that failed. And the voices of the innocent continue to speak. We're joined again with Kathy Morse. And now joining the conversation, Kathy, I'll come right to you. Uh, Mark Clements is going to join in this conversation. And uh, we are privileged and honored to have him here. Mark, are you with us? Yes, I am. And uh, it is a likewise privilege uh, to be able to make a comment. And, you know, the comment that I would like to make is this. What is wrongful conviction? It's a conviction that is gained as the result of a criminal justice system who do believe that the accused is guilty. However, what we have seen time and time and time again is that innocence do not matter within our criminal justice system that have used corruption to basically heighten its careers. What we have seen is uh, the sad story with Khalif Browder uh, being locked up inside of a jail for a backpack that basically anyone could have paid the price for and he could have been freed. Today is a national day on wrongful conviction, and many people across this nation do not understand the blood, the sweat, the tears, nor the misery that many men and women have had to endure and the pain that now many must carry because of post-traumatic stress disorder and other mental illnesses as the result of the state terrorizing them behind the walls of a jail or a prison. In 1981, I was only 16 years of age, and I was taken down to a police station in the city of Chicago, Area 3 Violent Crimes. I knew nothing about a John Burge. I knew nothing about police officers torturing confessions from human beings inside of police stations. Well, I became a product of John Burge's torture ring. Uh, I was charged with four counts of murder and arson. What happened at the police station is that I had my genitals and my grabbed and squeezed. 
I was beat. I was called the N-word. I was called that N-word so much that I honestly thought it was my middle name. However, we have a criminal justice system that did not even examine the evidence of the case. I was found guilty given four counts of natural life plus 30 years. I was called a minister to society. I was told that I would never, ever be released out of a prison. I served, unfortunately, 28 years inside of a prison. And as I watched the documentary on Khalif Browder and seeing the hard, dedicated work of his mom, that calls me to reflect upon my own mother. My mother died as well. And the trauma and the misery that these families must burden as the result of wrongful conviction, it leads me to the question as to why we, the people, do not have remedy to sue the government for stealing our lives. I lost a very huge chunk of my life. And in losing that and returning back into a society that is poison, because that's what we're dealing with right now today. We're dealing with a poison society that we have no identity of. Oh, absolutely right. And, Mark, let me ask you a Closing. Yes, let me ask you a question. As you break mm-hmm. down what you went through, and Kathy, I'm going to get your thoughts on what you've heard from Mark tonight as well. 28 years. 28 years. So, Mark, mm-hmm. basically, when you went in, you were just a basically you were you were a kid, mm-hmm. 16 year kid. That's just what you I'm are. I was a young child. You know yeah. what I mean? And to have to suffer. That is. That is unimaginable to me. You go in as a kid. Well, you the come suffering up, continues. No, it continues. That, let, me get, let me get Kathy's thought on this, uh, Mark. Kathy, when you hear that, what, what goes through your mind along with what the report we just did on Khalif Browder? What are your thoughts, Kathy? The systemic abuse of anyone who enters a jail or prison but what is even more disturbing is that um, people who are innocent are, you know, they don't care. They, the, the correctional officers do not distinguish between who is innocent and who is guilty. Um, you know, and it's this systemic abuse and mistreatment and brutality that goes on. Um, and it's just not at Rikers. It's in every jail and every prison in this country. Um, and I don't think that for those who are found innocent, no amount of money can ever give them back their lives. No amount of money can heal the trauma that they've experienced. No amount of money can give them back the time that they lost 
with their family. Absolutely and right. for those who yeah, for those who are innocent, the impact it has on their families. Um I personally believe that Khalif's mother bro- died of a broken heart. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't and, doubt that. You know, that's something that you can't get back. And there, you um, know, one thing there, Kathy, that is really a um, a point that needs to be driven home is, uh, you know, when there's when there's innocent people behind bars. That is why the the training, um, the oversight, and all these things of the correctional officers, it really needs to be ramped up because there's a reason that the correctional officers aren't titled, you know, judge, jury, and executioner. But that's how they act. That's how yeah. they respond to anyone who is locked up. And and if the if their training does not begin to include the fact that, hey, some of the people that you're dealing with in here, these people are locked up wrongfully. They, they've, they've been convicted wrongfully or they've never been convicted of any crime. They're, they're waiting to go to trial. And as many exonerations that we see, as many uh, people that have been let out of prison for prosecutorial misconduct and things of that nature, mm-hmm. the, the correctional officers inside of every facility state, juvenile, uh, federal, it needs to be a part of ingrained into them that when you come to work here, that the people you're dealing with, even if they were all criminals and were all locked up for uh, the crimes that they had been um, Mm -hmm. tried and convicted for, they're still humans. But the fact that with the number of innocent people, I mean, the, the mass record amounts of innocent people that have been found to be locked up, it has to become a part of the mindset of the correctional officers that you cannot just go around abusing uh, anybody for that matter, but especially the fact that these people are innocent. Well, and Kathy, I'm going to let you answer that. And I want to add to that really quickly. The thing is, they don't believe anyone in prison is innocent. That's the culture. Right. Nobody in prison is innocent. That's what yep. you're taught to believe. You're taught that these folks are animals. So how are you going to possibly distinguish between the innocent and the guilt? Because your mind is already made up. Everybody in here deserves to be here. Kathy, your thoughts on that? Mm-hmm. My thoughts are, I don't know if you've heard the saying, when the fish smells, you start with the head and work your way down. Sure. Um, and we're going to, yeah, we're going to use New York City Department of Corrections and their Corrections Officers Union. It stinks from the head down. And we have to start cleaning house and start with the head and work our way down because that whole mindset trickles down. You get some young individuals who are coming in as rookie officers and it's drilled into their minds, um, and it's a constant thing. Now, the president of the Correctional Officers Union worked for 13 years in the solitary confinement unit. So he already has this mindset that individuals need to be brutalized. They need to be abused. 
And it just trickles down. And it's almost like they encourage it amongst themselves and that if you don't do it, you know, it's like this fraternity. And, you know, they support one another when they're abusive and violent to um, individuals who are detained or incarcerated. But if they show any sign of weakness or kindness or humanity towards someone who is detained or incarcerated, well, then you're too weak. We need to get rid of you. Wow. And that's the problem. And that's why I say the culture is horrific. Yes, the culture, it's the culture, and the culture has to change. And... You know, yeah. it just and that's 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 this whole issue that they're talking about with closing Rikers and opening up, you know, the four smaller facilities until they change that culture of brutality and abuse and violence at the hands of correction officers out on Rikers Island. What we're going to have is four mini Rikers with the same problems. Exactly right. What's interesting, and I have to point this out because it's so critical for people to know that with Raise the Age and then moving the adolescents off of Rikers into an adolescent facility, they needed to get um, correctional officers to go work there because they were short. Um, Youth and Family Services was short with getting trained staff in there. Well, the correction officers did not want to go in there and work with the youth because they weren't allowed to carry their tasers. They couldn't carry their pepper spray, so they were not allowed to carry any of that. If they had any use of force, they would be written up as a child abuser, and they didn't want that permanent record. So they, they have gone to court as a labor issue to try and prevent them from having to work in this youth facility. Yep. And it and also came out, yeah, and also came out in New York for 2017 that the number of excessive use of force against detainees on Rikers is way up while the population of detainees is down. Well, that's unbelievable. And Mark, um, yes, you listen. What I want to do, you guys have a few minutes to come back with us. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to deal with the yes. story. Yeah, I want to get your yes. thoughts more further. And you also, uh, excuse me, Kathy, dealing with Brian mm-hmm. Banks. Are you familiar with his story? Young lady accuses yep. him of sexual assault. This man was primed for the NFL, the National Football League, definitely on course for that. And from one accusation, we hear his voice, the voice of the innocent that suffered behind the wall. And not only behind the wall, when he came out, he has never been the same. We're going to deal with that story. Mark, get your thoughts. How do we solve this? We say change the culture. How do we do that? How do we change an embedded thought process that seems impossible to change? We believe here that the process has started with us actually being the voice of the voices. What Kathy, what you do, Mark, what you do, we're voices for those behind the wall as we continue the series, The Voices of the Innocent. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment 
uh, religion. Or prohibiting the free exercise. Thereof. Or abridging the freedom of speech. Or of the press. Or the right. Of the people. Peaceably. To assemble. And to petition. The government. For a redress of grievances. The racial composition of the prison population in the United States is very different from the population at large. If people are worried about inequality in America today, I think this deserves more attention in the discussion. Racial inequality in the criminal justice system gets ignored because it doesn't affect most people. In 2010, over 1.6 million people were in state and federal prisons within the United States. So 497 out of every 100,000 Americans were in jail about half of 1%, less than 1%. It doesn't seem very large, but when you separate that population by race, you recognize that the personal effects of the criminal justice system are very unequally shared throughout our society. Whites make up 64% of the total population, but only 31% of the incarcerated population. Blacks represent 14% of society, but 36% of the prison population. Hispanics are 16% of America, but 24% of the American prison population. Less than one in a hundred Americans are currently in jail, but for some races, genders, and age groups, that ratio is a lot larger. For example, if you're young, black, and male, it's closer to about one in four. That means you'd have a higher probability of going to jail than of getting married or going to college. These results are unequal and problematic as poor black communities lack so many of their members, but what can be done? The causes of this trend are undoubtedly complicated and multi-causal, but there is reason to suggest that part of the blame is our criminal justice system itself. In the ways police officers enforce laws, in the ways that laws are written and prosecuted and more. In many cases, it is not overt racism by individual actors. Many police officers, prosecutors, and judges are undoubtedly trying to be fair and trying to do the right thing. But economics can explain how unequal enforcement of the criminal law happens anyway. This is because the political and bureaucratic structure of the criminal justice system creates perverse incentives. The formal laws surrounding drug prohibition, for example, are written as if to be colorblind. But people with different levels of wealth face different costs and benefits to participating in the drug trade. Different groups consume different drugs at different rates and Lastly, those groups are politically represented in very different quantities. Thus, they are arrested and incarcerated at very different rates. How could minority groups hope to use the political process to fix inequality when they are systematically over-incarcerated and disenfranchised? Despite noble intentions, politics often does not affect the basic incentives of costs and benefits faced by political or citizen actors. We might need a new approach to social change if we are going to address these problems. We definitely need more study into the causes of inequality, and we should admit that radical changes might be both necessary and preferable to the status quo.
tell a lot about someone by what they spend their money on, their priorities, their concerns, and their motives. Big Pharma says their top priority is research and development. They say that prescription drug costs are so high because they spend so much on research. But the simple truth is nine out of the 10 biggest pharma companies spend 50% more on advertising than they do on research and development. It's true, tens of billions more. The more they spend, the clearer it becomes. Big Pharma's priorities are more ads, more sales, and higher costs to you. It's time for Big Pharma to get their priorities straight. Americans deserve open and honest prescription drug pricing. Let's solve the cost crisis now. Visit CSRXP.org. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen of America, to AJC Radio. As tonight, we've been really in a conversation that is diagnosis critical, and that is voices from behind the wall, the voices of the innocent that continue to suffer as a result of a system that continues to fail. And tonight, we continue the series, Voices from Behind the Wall and the Voices of the Innocent. We are honored to have our two special guests who are in this conversation, uh, Kathy Morse and Mark Clemens, uh, giving some insight that perhaps would not be available had they uh, not agreed to be a part of this show. And we are very thankful for them taking time out of their evening to join us tonight. Uh, Kathy, Mark, are you with us? Yes, I'm here. Okay, and we appreciate that. And uh, we talked uh, right before the break, uh, in regards to the Brian Banks story, you both sound like you're both familiar with that story. Um, Very. And, and this is a, this was a tragedy. Uh, I, I remember after this happened to Mr. Banks, uh, and we're going to play the clips, and then we're going to actually get in, get in the conversation uh, about it. And uh, we're going to play the part one and the part two of that and, and discuss is our system where it is right now as far as the innocent being convicted? Because the folks that give the false stories are basically friends with the prosecution. They are allies to the prosecution. Therefore, after uh, it's found out, and you're going to hear this in the Brian Banks uh, story we're getting ready to play for you, uh, the lady laughed about it. She laughed about uh yeah, you know, it was no big deal. Yeah, no, you never did nothing to me. But you took this man, this young, promising athlete, and you ruined this man. Now, I'm, I'm, I, I admire Brian Banks for what he's doing. I believe last I heard he was part of the NFL in the front office. But I'll tell mm-hmm. you right now, if you're a ball player, uh, thank you for the front office. But I'm pretty sure Brian Banks would like to be on the field because he was a gifted yep. athlete. And this, when we, when we, as we now discuss, how do we change 
this? What is happening to the folks who are lying and making the voices of the innocent become silenced as they go behind that wall? What are the contributing factors to that? This is one of them. And we're going to play the story right now. We're going to get conversation and get into conversation, Kathy and, and Mark, as soon as uh, we play this. Let's play it. Everything seemed to be lining up for Brian until one day at school, he was hanging out with a girl he'd known for years. Her name was Juanetta Gibson. What happened next changed the course of Brian Banks' life forever. We made our way to this area and pretty much began making out. Um, you know, we kissed, we touched, but we never had sex. No argument. No, no argument. Uh, we actually ended on a good note where, you know, I was making jokes and, and, you know, she smiled and everything just seemed normal. Everything seemed okay. But it wasn't. By the end of the day, Brian Banks was sitting in jail, charged with two counts of forcible rape and kidnapping Juanetta Gibson. He was kicked off the football team and expelled from school with all hope of a scholarship and NFL career, suddenly vanished. The only thing he could do was fight for his innocence. And the only person who was in his corner was his mother, Leomi Myers, who sold her house and car to pay for a lawyer. I consider it doing what a mother should do. Initially, Brian's prospects appeared to be looking up. DNA samples from the L.A. County Sheriff's Office came back negative, as he insisted they would. Unable to make a million-dollar bail, Brian waited for a trial for a year behind bars. As his day in court approached, Brian says that his lawyer feared that he wouldn't get a fair trial based on his age, size, and race. So she, an African-American herself, convinced Brian to plead no contest to a crime he insisted he didn't commit. Then last year came a turn he never could have expected. When one day, searching for work online, he got a friend request on his Facebook page. It was Juanetta Gibson, the same woman who had accused him of raping her. I immediately just I froze. And um, I didn't accept the request. Instead, I sent a, a message to her. And my message asked her, why would you, why would you friend request me? And... Um, she replied back that she was hoping that we could allow bygones to be bygones. She was really adamant about wanting to see me and wanting to hang out. It wasn't about wanting to help. It was more of wanting to reconnect. Hang out. Yeah. What you been up to? What are you doing tonight? What are you doing tomorrow? Let's hang out. Ryan was in disbelief. But he also knew instantly what kind of opportunity this might be. And with the help of her friend's father, a private investigator, they set up a meeting with hidden cameras. You were surprised that she showed up? Very much surprised. My is a 23, 15 year old. With the cameras rolling, Brian asked her for help in getting exonerated. And here's how she responded. I mean, I will go through with helping you, but it's like at the same time, all that money they gave us. I mean, gave me, I don't want to have to pay it back all that, because that will take a long time. Though Juanetta admitted to not wanting to give back the money she won in her civil lawsuit against the school, she was willing to meet a second time. And it was then that Brian and the investigator worked to get the ultimate admission on tape. He's accused of rape, 
he's accused of kidnapping. Yeah, and I need to just hear it from you that those things, and I'll put it all on a piece of paper, and then I'll meet up with you, and we can go from there. I'm just being on your bed now. Yeah, and so I did. Did he break you? No, he did not break you. Did he kidnap you? No. You got it. The truth is out. The truth is out. Um, <laughs> I honestly wanted to just stand up and walk out of there. There was nothing else to talk about. Brian Banks, case number NA 54991. And with the help of the California Innocence Project, Brian took the taped confession to the district attorney's office, who viewed the new evidence, met with Juanetta Gibson, and then agreed to recommend to the judge that Brian be exonerated. The people's motion to dismiss this case pursuant to Section 1385. At that moment, a 10-year nightmare was over. Well, there you have it. I hear a young lady laughing. Nah, he didn't rape me. Are you kidding me? I'm trying to find out where the joke is. Social media caught her slipping. And I'm sure she was aware that Mr. Banks was an NFL prospect. Let's let bygones be bygones. Are you kidding me? Ten years, a ten-year nightmare. Mark, let me start with you, Kathy. I'm going to come to you. Mark, your thoughts on this type of insanity as we become the voice of Brian. You know, well, this is the problem. Uh, And I have focused on the same thing here in the state of Illinois. It is a shame that so many people are among the community and they are responsible for so many people being in prison based off of lies uh, for whatever reasons they cooperated with prosecutors or police. It is a shame what this young lady did to Brian. She destroyed his career, not only destroying his career. We have many people like that, and Brian is not the only individual, uh, and it may sound to be uh, somewhat strange, but it is true. There are many cases like that. We're dealing with these cases right here out of Chicago where people – They want their rent paid. They may see people on the television who have won awards, uh, meaning judgments from the court, and under some type of plot, they go to the court and they want to scream domestic violence or they want to basically emper to mention these individuals as being connected to parts of crimes that have occurred. This is an outrage, and the community, the community must stand up as a whole, and really attorneys, attorneys are somewhat responsible too. 
because they bury the names of these individuals and they are walking right among us in the community. Uh, I am a employee with Chicago Torture Justice Center in Chicago, and I study wrongful convictions. I'm not one to remain silent uh, like some people they remain silent. I try to scream as loud as possible, but sometimes screaming loud as possible, you're not heard. And what it uh, allows is for people to be victimized and re-victimized. Uh, and one other point I would like to make, so many individuals that were generated out of these prisons or maybe they got out of prison based off of guilty pleas. They are victims of this right now today of what this young lady Juanita did to Brian Banks, and it is just a insult to basically see how the criminal justice system basically ignores once these guys go before them and try to explain how they have been manipulated or plotted or schemed against by members of society. We yep. will never change this stuff until we become outraged. I agree with you 100%. Kathy, your thoughts as well. We're going to follow up on that in a moment. Kathy, your thoughts. Um, I guess it happens. Um, and this is, it, it's a very... To me, it's a very hard thing because um, I was the victim of assault, and I did not report it. Um, and then I was assaulted again, and I was um, forced to report it because it was on a court trip, and I was transported by uh, the sheriff's department. And as a result of me having a panic attack when I got back to the jail and screaming, don't touch me, um, they, uh, several days later after that happened, they sent, um, uh, detectives from the district attorney's office to come in and interview me. And I did not want to file a formal complaint. I did not want to report it. Three months later, I was charged with filing a false police report. Um, so, um, you know, um, it's, it's hard for me. Um, but I do know that there are women that will do that uh, out of revenge, um, out of being um, jilted. It does happen. And that's yeah. where it's incumbent upon prosecutors to fully investigate these no, allegations. Um, I have also, I also know of people who've had their careers ruined over false allegations. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where we need to be careful um, because people do cry wolf. Yeah. Um, and I really think that what this girl did, you know, it just sickens me that, you know, years later, she just laughed about it. She ruined this man's life. Yeah, she did. She ruined his career. And that's not something that he'll ever get back. No, he can't get it back. And he tried no. upon being released. And I think, and, and Kathy, I, I uh, 
I'm so sorry you endured something like that. I'm very sorry about that. But what makes me outraged is that when people do what this young lady did, for the true victims mm-hmm. that have suffered, such as yourself, well, right. Southern, Absolutely. that's horrible. Because then people begin to get in their mind, well, you have a true victim crying from the assault that really right. was assaulted. Mm-hmm. Shame on this young lady who makes the minds mm-hmm. of people turn and think, well, are you another Juanita? Are you another person yep. that is just claiming that? That's horrible. Uh, no matter mm-hmm. how you look at it, this here, uh, a woman whose false claim of rape, and this is Juanita, uh, Juanita Gibson, uh, sent uh, former prep football star Brian Banks to prison, was ordered to pay $2.6 million judgment in connection with the case. A Los Angeles Superior Court judge on Friday ordered Juanita Gibson to pay $1.5 million plus an additional $1.1 million. Here's what's insane about that. She doesn't have a million dollars. She doesn't have it. Right. Yeah, she doesn't have no money. So guess what? Your punishment. Let's help you out, Judge. Mm-hmm. Cuff her up. Lock her down six years. For what yep. she took. Mm-hmm. That's not harsh. How you gonna no. judge? We, the court stood up for Brian Banks, a lady that makes minimum wage has been ordered to pay two point six million dollars. There's no money. So your message the, is void. Well, but in a, in a, if you can also look at it, it was kind of. I don't even know if it, you could say it was a moral victory for him because he's lost everything and he's not going to get it back. Exactly right. I mean, if I know I'm working and no dis, if I'm working at a fast food joint, McDonald's, Wendy's, Popeyes, wherever, and a judge orders me to pay two point six million, I'm going to say, okay, mm-hmm. have a good day. I'm going back to work and make my money. You're not going to get two point six million. You're not right. getting anything. Mm-hmm. I mean. That is the most ridiculous thing, and I understand the the optics, if you will. Like, look, we did something. You did nothing. Yeah, but it's, I mean, it, there's no real justice there. You know, like we've all been saying, like she literally she stole this, you know, a, a good chunk of this young man's life. I mean, he was talented in 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 the polytechnic school he was going to. He was a USC, you know, prime time, you know, football candidate. I mean, highly recruited by you know everybody on his way and then this happens and completely derails him you know she gets a settlement for 1.5 million dollars then comes back like a gold digger just trying to you know patch things up let's get together and everything else like that because she knows the man's talented and won't even help him out to get himself exonerated they well, they well, ha- they had to basically wiretap the room well i have look. to ask did he have to register as a sex offender as well Yes, he initially he did initially, and then of course when the case is dismissed, uh, my understanding mm-hmm. was that it's all rectified. Uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, I, we'll double check that with our yeah. He should have been ta- yeah. He should have been taken off the registry, but still, right. The that registry is harsh. Absolutely harsh. Absolutely. So you know, you the, I mean that is. Well, these days folks get alerts. Get an alert! Hey, you have a sexual predator in your neighborhood. His name is Brian Banks. How do we change that once it's out? From you a, can, he can, right. he will right. never be able to repair his reputation in some people's eyes. That's right. That's right. And that's why we need people like you, Kathy. Mark, people like you, 
uh, a just cause organizations that are doing something uh, to be the voice for the voiceless. And I think, uh, and uh, not only that, in this series, the voice of the innocent, uh, you can't only, and nobody can go there, kind of put themselves there, what this man went through, sitting in a prison cell, knowing he did nothing wrong. And you got somebody that when he gets out, comes out and goes on social media and says, well, no, he didn't rape me. He didn't kidnap me. Because in most states, kidnapping, at least in the state of Colorado, 10 years per person. That's right. You're getting 10 years just because you moved her to the other side of the room. He did none of that. So, And it never – and, you know, you have to wonder what kind of conscience does, does she have? Exactly right. Exactly right. You know, has she no, no guilt and, you know, no morals? I mean – the guilt alone would weigh too heavily on me. It, you know, it just, I don't know. Listen, I feel your pain. I feel your, your empathy, your passion. Uh, this is something that's tragic. And until we get to a place in this country uh, to stand up and be the voice mm-hmm. of the voice and, and those behind that wall. And I can't tell you what you've brought to this conversation tonight really quick folks before i let you guys go because i know you guys have spent your evening with us we are so grateful uh and thankful to you for doing that with us i'm gonna play one more clip if you don't mind i want to get your closing thoughts of how do we progress forward in changing the culture of a nation let's hear this clip i'm gonna get your thoughts i was in this march 8 1990 and my death day was july 2nd 1990 i thought this was all a nightmare that it went in. But it wasn't a nightmare. At the age of 17, Sabrina Butler was sentenced to death after Dre convicted her of killing her own baby boy. Sabrina grew up poor in rural Columbus, Mississippi. My childhood was not great. I didn't have what normal children, time to play, um, Christmas toys, things like that. We were mostly uh, shuffled from one place to another. In 1989, um, I had my son, Walter Dean. He was a good baby. He never cried. He never fussed unless he wanted a bottle or wanted to be changed. The day that would change Sabrina's life forever started as an ordinary one. I put him to sleep and went jogging. I jogged him to the end of the street, and when I got back to the house, I went in the apartment and went to the kitchen to get a bottle. And... When I went in the room, he wasn't breathing. So I, didn't, I panicked. I didn't know, you know what I should do, so I just grabbed him. That's the first thing I thought to do in room. Sabrina asked a neighbor to rush her and nine-month-old Walter Dean to the hospital. On the way there, she said she gave CPR to her son, desperately attempting to revive him. I was screaming when I ran into the emergency room, and they grabbed him from me and carried him to the back. And um, I had to stay in the waiting room, and I was waiting and waiting. And... Um, They came back out, and they told me that they tried everything they could. Within 24 hours, Sabrina lost her son and was now being questioned by the police about his death. Before she knew it, she was charged with murder and behind bars. Her trial lasted one week. She was convicted and sentenced to death row. The first day I went to prison, they had me shackled from my ankles around my waist and my wrist. I was just, okay, I was shaking. They 
carry me in this room, and they took off all my, made me take off all my clothes. And then after you do that, you had to put on this jumpsuit. They just put me in a cell. And then they came back a few minutes later and took the orange jumpsuit and gave me the red. They let you know, everybody in the prison know that you're on death row. I've been on death row two years and nine months in a cell no bigger than your bathroom for 23 hours a day. Two new attorneys entered Sabrina's life and began digging deeper into what they believed were major discrepancies in her case. Her case was appealed to the Mississippi Supreme Court. I got the call from my attorney that my case had been overturned in the Supreme Court, and I was happy. I was so happy that I wouldn't go back in my cell. I'm thinking that we're fixing to go back right back to trial, and they're going to bring out all the proof and all the evidence that should have been brought out in the first trial, but that didn't happen like that. So, off death row, but still not free. My second trial was in 1995. Um, it also lasted five days. The biggest bombshell came from the medical examiner, who said that a rare kidney condition might have led to her nine-month-old son's death. So now, Sabrina stood before a new jury, and it took them less than an hour to reach a verdict. And when they said not guilty, I just lost my balance. Voices of the Innocent, this woman being on death row. This country needs to do something. We've been on this, Voices from Behind the Wall, as I said earlier, 17 shows close to it. It's a lot of information, and we're not done yet. Kathy, I'm going to get your closing thoughts of number one on this clip. Mark, I'm going to come to you. And get your thoughts as well as we graciously uh, in this segment of the show. And thank you for your time tonight. How do we make this better? First of all, in the death row clip you just heard. Kathy, go ahead. What we need to do is we need to move away from this medieval mindset that we have of punishment towards a more restorative and rehabilitative approach. Um, And until we do that, we will see more cases like this. We will hear about it. Um, But there needs to be an overall change in the community and across the country. Um, You know, we really need to move away. We have a very medieval approach to punishment and incarceration and how we treat people who break the law, Um, even if they are ultimately found to be not guilty. They still have that stigma. And that's where we need. We we have to be much more open-minded. We have to move away from that Um, because incarceration at the rate it's going right now is going to impact everybody in every community. Absolutely. And until we change, until we change that outlook, our approach will be medieval, and it it serves no purpose. Absolutely, well spoken, Kathy. And I agree 100 percent with you. Um, 
I'm going to be talking Thursday, Mark. I'm coming right to you. The mental torture of the innocent behind the wall. I'm going to address mm. that. Feel free, Kathy, to call in if you're not busy. You always give a bright yeah, perspective. I'm, I'm, I am not busy, and I will be more than happy to call in and join the conversation. We appreciate that, and that's a big thing, the Thank mental you. torture of the innocent. we got to address that issue. Mark, your closing mm-hmm. thoughts on this? Well, I know both. Uh, I know Brian, and I know Sabrina. Sabrina is a very compassionate individual. And to just focus upon what took place with her is mind-blowing. And it's mind-blowing in many different ways. But uh, as Kathy stated, that we are in evil times. And those evil times, uh, we have to get away from the punitive aspects of our criminal justice system. We must begin to demand that attorneys that are representing some of these cases, that they begin to make known some of these individuals that are right among us, uh, roaming the community that is responsible for men and women suffering behind prison walls. And as you stated, uh, the, the mental aspect of the incarceration of the innocent uh, is great, you know, and there's a brother uh, who served 31 years by the name of Stanley Rice. And, you know, he, 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 he suffers day and night. I suffer day and night. And, you know, when you come back out into this society, like Khalif, um, Khalif Browder best described it, you can't identify with this society anymore because it's ter- tarantulas. And not only tarantulas, you don't know who to trust out here. People will do you in for two pennies, and that's the killing aspect of this society. The women that maybe the brothers would run into or the sisters would run into the men, it, you know, they have plots and schemes and You can't identify with that because you have been incarcerated so long and now you have been kicked back out into a tarantulous society. It's hell. But I just want to thank you and uh, the the other radio hosts for allowing me the opportunity to provide comment on the wrongfully convicted. And we just got to keep fighting because really in reality – even with our toughest fight, it seems like we're losing the battle. And thank you, Mark, for that. And uh, you always have a platform here as well on this show. We appreciate you taking time tonight. Uh, sorry for what you endured and suffered as well. I can't thank you folks enough. Spread the word, folks, about AJC Radio on this series, Voices from Behind the Wall. And we will continue the voices of the innocent. Thank you so much. You guys have a good rest of your evening. Uh, and contact us anytime you need a platform to share your story. We appreciate it. Good night. Good night. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Some powerful words from both our guests tonight. We're going to be dealing with Thursday again, torture, the mental torture 
not only of the voices of the innocent behind the wall, but what happens when the innocent go free? Or are they free at all? We'll address that issue Thursday. Till next time, America, this is AJC Radio, Voices from Behind the Wall, the Voices of the Innocent. Good night, America.